0: This episode of No Place Like Home is being brought to you by the Sierra Club, which encourages you to get out there and explore, enjoy, and protect the planet. Join our 3.8 million members and supporters working to power this nation with 100% clean energy at sierraclub.org. And now, on to this episode of No Place Like Home.
1: Hi, I'm Anna Jane Joyner, a climate activist living on the Gulf Coast
0: of Alabama. And I'm Marianne Hitt, a climate activist with the Sierra Club, living in the West Virginia Hills. And this is No Place Like Home, a show that gets to the heart of climate change. This season, we are bringing the light. We're doing a deep dive on faith and spiritual traditions of all kinds and the wisdom that they can provide for all of us as we face the climate crisis. And we're so
1: excited to share our latest conversation with the amazing Sherry Mitchell.
2: My name is Sherry Mitchell. My name in my language is Wanahamukwasit. I am an Indigenous rights attorney from the Penobscot Nation.
0: Sherry is also the author of a wonderful book called Sacred Instructions that Anna Jane and I love and highly recommend checking out. It gives us a roadmap for how to be in this world, frankly, by bringing together indigenous lessons, teachings, and guidance that she has been moved to share with the wider world with consultation from the elders in her community.
1: And we'll get right to our conversation with Sherry Mitchell. But first, Marianne and I have some catching up to do.
0: Marianne, it's so good to be catching up with you. How are you? I am doing so well, Anna-Jane. I am so happy to be finding a little time to catch up with you and listen to this incredible conversation with Sherry Mitchell, one of the ones I know we're both most excited to share with all of our listeners. But before we go there, I just want to take a moment to celebrate my very favorite time of the year, which is happening now where I live, which is spring. This is the time of year when my daughter was born and spring in Appalachia is completely magical. The dogwoods and the redwood trees are blooming and the little tiny buds are coming out on all of the trees and everything is like a bright neon green. And it is just one of these times of year that reminds me that the birth of new things is possible out of, what seems like desolate death and darkness. <laughs> 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 that cycle is built into the whole thing. This cycle of rebirth and regeneration is a rhythm that we are all deeply tapped into. So I just wanted to take a minute to celebrate spring with you, Anna-Jane, because I think it's an important spiritual reminder, too, that new and better things are always possible.
1: The impossible things are possible. I actually woke up this morning. Have you heard the song by Rodgers and Hammerstein, Cinderella? And it's Brandy and Whitney Houston, and they're singing like, impossible things are happening every day.
0: It's impossible things are happening every- that's so sweet (laughs) i know
1: i think especially as a climate activist or even just like a person paying attention to the scariness of the climate crisis and the craziness of our politics like it can just feel so overwhelming and like how the hell are we going to do this but then it's stories like the resurrection story and the christian tradition like there's just a story of spring and the fact that literally the story of renewal and life coming from death is built into our ecology and the fabric of this planet and all of our stories and lives. You know, it, it does give me a little bit of an extra, um, I don't know, magical step, especially, you know, the winter was hard this year. I, I struggled a bit. So I'm so thankful that this new season is here and that we can fight together to make impossible things
0: possible. Absolutely. And uh, hopefully you can channel some of that into this work that we're all trying to do on behalf of our climate. So we have a great listener voice memo. Thank you to Lauren for sending this one in about the many creatures and nations of animals that we share this world with, and it's incredibly beautiful, and I'm so excited to share it with all of you, followed by our conversation with Sherry Mitchell. And if any listeners want to send in a passage or quote that is meaningful to you in facing the climate crisis, you can just record a voice memo on your phone and then email it to us at no podcast at com. And now let's hear from Lauren. Hi, I'm Lauren Espen-Cotter, Wife
3: and mother raising three girls on a blackberry farm on the Potomac River. This passage by Henry Beston gives me perspective when thinking about our relationship to all the beings on this earth. We need another, and a wiser, and perhaps a more mystical concept of animals. Remote from universal nature, and living by complicated artifice, man and civilization surveys the creature through the glass of his knowledge, and sees, thereby, a feather magnified and the whole image in distortion. We patronize them for their incompleteness, for their tragic fate of having taken form so far below ourselves, and therein we err, and greatly err. For the animals shall not be measured by man. In a world older and more complete than ours, they move finished and complete, gifted with extensions of the senses we have lost or never attained, living by voices we shall never hear, They are not brethren. They are not underlings. They are other nations caught with ourselves in the net of life and time. Fellow prisoners of the splendor and travail of the earth.
0: If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care. A leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with
2: Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
1: And we got to do it together, which is always so much fun. I just felt like my heart was brimming. And there's just so much wisdom and depth and power to her story and her culture and her spiritual guidance that can really help us navigate this super white, patriarchal and activist worlds that many of us live in.
0: Our listeners know usually we edit down these conversations and play excerpts from them. But we're going to do something different here. We're just going to basically play you the conversation that we had with Sherry so that you mostly hear from her with a few of our questions interspersed in there because it was just such an incredible conversation and she had so much wisdom to share.
1: We hope you enjoy her words.
2: The Penobscot Nation is in the Central Wabanaki Territory and I grew up on an island nation surrounded by the Penobscot River. The Wabanaki are the people of the dawnland. land. Uh, Shkwaban, which is the beginning of uh, Squabanaki, is the light that peaks up over the horizon just before dawn. And we are the people of that first light. And so our tribal nations include tribes in Maine and the Canadian Maritimes. When I say that I'm Penobscot or Bunowapskake in my language, I'm actually placing myself in the center of an entire ecosystem that includes the water, the land, the peoples, the animals, the fish, the birds, the insects that inhabit that place that we make up that place of being that we all share. And so from my earliest framing, that awareness was part of my instruction. And uh, I've never been able to think of myself as anything other than that. This is something that we've asserted in our stories since time immemorial. And that belief was labeled as uh, magical thinking or uh, superstitious absurdity for a long, long time. And now science has come to realize that what we were discussing in our relational models is actually the structure of life on the planet. And so our awareness of our connectivity to all things, to all living aspects of life here on Mother Earth is reflective of our understanding of the larger web of creation that we're connected to.
0: I think one moment when the real acute impact of climate change and fossil fuel extraction on Native Americans here in the U.S. really hit home for folks was during the Standing Rock period. Did you travel there?
2: I did. I was actually there when the permit was initially denied by Obama when they um, began to close down the camp in the middle of a blizzard in December Water is Water is and had been working here on the ground at home, collecting resources, raising money, sending supplies to the camp for about five months prior to actually traveling there myself, being able to be there and to stand upon that ground where so many have made stands for the rights of life and the rights of indigenous peoples in the past was a really powerful experience, even though I wasn't able to be there for very long. And Standing Rock is incredibly significant for a number of reasons. And I think one of the most important reasons is that it was the fulfillment of a prophecy from 1877 that was given by Crazy Horse. And when you read that prophecy, or hear that prophecy, and then you think about what happened at Standing Rock, it's really clear that the two events are inextricably linked. And the ceremony where that prophecy was received by Crazy Horse was a stone's throw from where the stand at Standing Rock occurred. And if you'd like, I can share that prophecy with you.
0: Oh, please, I would love that.
2: So the Crazy Horse prophecy that was given in 1877, following up a ceremony that Crazy Horse held with Sitting Bull goes as follows. Upon suffering, beyond suffering, the Red Nation shall rise again, and it shall be a blessing for a sick world, a world filled with broken promises, selfishness, and separations, a world longing for light again. I see a time of seven generations, when all the colors of mankind will gather under the sacred tree of life, and the whole earth will become one circle again. In that day there will be those among the Lakota, who will carry knowledge and understanding of unity among all things, and the young white ones will come to those of my people and ask for this wisdom. I salute the light within your eyes, where the whole universe dwells. For when you are at that center within you, and I am at that place within me, we shall be as one. And so there are many things about this prophecy that I've noticed over the, over the last several years that ring true for me. First of all, when you think about the stand at Standing Rock, young people from all over the world, from non-Indigenous nations came to Standing Rock to stand with the Lakota people in their stand for the protection of the waters and to learn from them. They came to stand with them to learn about the understanding of unity among all things. And so those words in the Crazy Horse Prophecy came to fruition at that time. I also think that that was a seeding of a whole new generation of climate activists that have now dispersed back to their homelands and all over the world where they're carrying that understanding of unity among all things with them into the work that they're doing. Another piece of this that I think is significant is that for centuries, the indigenous understanding of the connection between all life has been ridiculed and has been decried by science as being a superstitious absurdity. But in 2015, 11 scientific institutions unveiled their Tree of Life project, which actually connected 2.3 billion species as being interrelated. And so, you know, when we're talking about the sacred tree of life, we're talking about the young white ones coming to learn from the Lakota people, there are all of these things that are going on around the time that The stand at Standing Rock first began to rise up, not only in that location, but in other places in this country that lead us to believe that there's a new understanding and a new awareness that is waking up within people that is going to inform the climate activism going forward.
1: I'm curious given that the pipeline has since been built, even despite the overwhelming protests from people on the ground and across the world and the lawsuits and all of those things. And it's hard not to feel depressed or defeated when you encounter defeat. So what wisdom or insights you have about that element of the story?
2: I don't see there being defeat at Standing Rock. What I see is the forward movement of flawed behavior in this moment in time. However, I think that the great success of Standing Rock was the more than 15,000 people that traveled there throughout that time who took with them from that place seeds of knowledge that are now spreading around the world and are rising up in protection of the sacred waters that sustain our lives. To me, it's reflective of what my friend Rivera Sun calls uh, the dandelion insurrection, where, you know, you blow on a dandelion and all the seeds disperse into all the different directions, and that it's impossible for you to capture every single seed. And so now we have this seeding of knowledge, this seeding of commitment, this seeding of activism that's rising up all over the world. And a lot of that is the result of what happened at Standing Rock.
0: the dandelion insurrection. It's a brilliant phrase. I will be carrying that little dandelion seed with me forward for sure. Um, And that brought to mind for me a passage from your book that I found very powerful because I am a climate activist. I'm working to try to move the U.S. off of coal and uh, as head of the Beyond Coal campaign at Sierra Club. And so there's a chapter in your book called Conquest Activism. The very first paragraph, which I will read for our listeners that I'd like to ask you about is conquest is the vehicle that drives colonization. It has been the modus operandi for 17 centuries. It has infiltrated all areas of our lives. The tendency to overthrow runs deep. The goal of much of our activism has been to topple one system and replace it with another. This practice perpetuates the cycle of domination and does nothing to help us achieve our broader goal of creating unity within our movements. So I think a lot of people who are looking at the climate crisis and the short amount of time we have to really make the changes that we need very much want to overthrow the fossil fuel industry. Uh, and so can you talk about why that is a problematic way of looking at the challenge in front of us and what a different model might be?
2: I think that one of the challenges of our time is overcoming the ingrained thinking and ideologies of our collective past, which are wrought with examples of conquest and domination, and that when we are looking to be creating a new way of being in the world, we can't use the same tools that were used to build the broken reality that we're living in at this time. And conquest is one of those tools of domination that has been used repeatedly throughout history that has led us to the place that we're in right now. To move forward under the guise of conquest and claim somehow that that's leading us toward a new way of being is disingenuous. And so we have to be willing to utilize different tools in order to do that. And so when we think about our spiritual journey, you know, the hero's journey that Joseph Campbell talked about and, and others have talked about. When I think about how that relates to my own indigenous way of knowing and the ways that we have been told that we have the responsibility and the obligation to live in balanced harmony with the rest of life in order to claim the right to live here, that I can't be destroying another. If I hope to be promoting the sustaining of life, that whole cycling forward of the hero's journey is not about destroying what's before you, but transcending the differences that we have, and then taking what's useful and cycling forward together as a whole Part of the flawed thinking of the colonial patriarchal system is this belief in oneness being equal to sameness. And I think that that is a detriment to us all. If we look at a healthy functioning ecosystem, it's filled with biodiversity. If we look at the human body, there's all of this diversity of all of these different systems that are working together harmoniously to create a healthy functioning being. It's no different with our societies that we need diversity of opinion. We need diversity of values. We need diversity of views so that we can balance and harmonize all of those things to create a healthy functioning system that allows each individual component to live unencumbered and unmolested by the domination of others. And we can't do that if we're completely suppressing ideas. And so we we got into this mess because we have suppressed ideas, we have um, relegated the way of life of indigenous peoples that was capable of sustaining life here for tens of thousands of years to obscurity and infiltrated the society with a very narrow demographic from within the colonial set, that of white wealthy men. And so we have to be able to make space for the generation of ideas and innovation as we're moving forward. And it has to be something that is not meant to be focused on destruction but on creation. We have to be focused on doing the work that's required for us to transcend our differences. And that doesn't mean that we passively allow harmful activities to continue. We have to engage processes and practices that allow for us to stand in the flow of harm and stop the harm that's coming toward us. We certainly have to become educated and aware of the harms that are flowing in our direction. And we have to be planning on moving forward in a new way. So in the book I talk about the 80-10-10 rule. And so we use 10% of our energy educating ourselves and learning about what are the problems that we're facing at this time. Where is the harm coming toward us? What is the source of that harm? What's feeding That harm because a lot of these systems and structures are being kept alive artificially. They're on life support. We need to allow them to die a natural death by withdrawing our support for their continued existence rather than annihilating them. Then we invest another 10% of our energy in stopping the flow of harm that's coming toward us. This is a warrior philosophy from my tradition called zamognis, which means that you stand in protection of life by stopping the flow of harm that's coming towards you without harming the other, because it's a stand that recognizes the sacredness of all life. And then a full 80% of our energy is spent visioning and actively creating the world that we wish to inhabit. And so when we think about what we feed grows, And we understand that basic concept that leads to the creation of physical matter in our world, you know, which goes back to teachings from our oral tradition about vibration and frequency creating form. If we understand that basic building block of creation and understand that what we feed grows, then we're going to start feeding the world that we actually want to inhabit and stop investing so much of our time and our energy, focusing on what we don't want to continue. And one of the things that I think is critically important for people to recognize is that this rising tension, this rising anxiety that people are feeling is not necessarily evidence that something is wrong, but perhaps evidence that something is being righted within us. And so we have stories, countless stories of creation that speak to different aspects of our being and how we connect with the larger world around us. And one of those stories provides us with an understanding of this connectivity through a web of life that when you look at it in modern scientific terms, describes quite eloquently what scientists call quantum entanglement. And so what quantum entanglement tells us is that any matter that was once connected physically can never be disconnected energetically. And for us, that instruction goes beyond energetically to also include spiritual connection. And so when we think about our creation... And our understanding of science today, when we think about those two things and we think about this awareness that, okay, we're related to all of these different species. We have this actual physical connection to them. We think about our seed of life stories, which are very similar to the Big Bang Theory, that we all were comprised of this one seed of life. Our seed of life stories with Kachiniwesk who is the sacred feminine and Ekjomundo, the sacred masculine, come together and create through this song of vibration of frequency, this seed of life that we all come from. When that seed explodes and begins expanding across the universe, we all were at one time part of this one pool of matter that became all life in the known universe. And then taking that a step further, if we think about amputees, amputees often talk about feeling uh, sensations in the foot that is no longer there. And that is called phantom limb theory. And so, what phantom limb theory is explaining is elements of quantum entanglement. And so, when we think about this rising anxiety, this rising panic, incredible sense of loneliness and grief that people are experiencing across the planet, how I view that is as us actually all experiencing a global phantom limb phenomena where we're starting to feel starting to reconnect and feel the experiences of other living beings on the planet. When we're having uh, waking up in the middle of the night with panic that we can't identify a source to, perhaps it's true that we're experiencing the panic of the trees as fire is rushing towards them, or as they're being chopped down in unprecedented numbers. When we're feeling this immense grief Perhaps we're feeling the grief of the mother whale who carried her baby around for 17 days trying to show us what we're doing to her ecosystem and their ability to continue living. When we're feeling this immense loneliness, perhaps we're feeling the loneliness of the last white rhino on the planet who has no one left within their species to communicate with. And so maybe this rising sensitivity is actually an expression of something being righted on a fundamental level within us. And if we lean into that tension, perhaps we can have the opportunity to see where our work most needs to occur. I like to think about that that rising tension as an opportunity for us to connect to the places where suffering exists in the most extreme senses on the planet and for us to put our energy into that, into that area to alleviate some of that suffering.
0: That really spoke to me. Um, and it also brought to mind the chapter in your book uh, about the important role of women in this work. I am a mom, so I have experienced childbirth, the comparisons between the actual pain and beauty of birthing a human child and the perhaps larger birthing process that might be underway. The chapter is called Women Are the Water Bearers of the Universe. Can you talk more about what that means and the special role that women might play in this waking up we're all doing together?
2: Well, I think that there's no question in the minds of any thinking person that the role of the sacred feminine is critically important at this time. We think about the role that women have traditionally held within our societies as the givers of life, the nurturers of life, the sustainers of life, and the way that women have been suppressed, oppressed, subjugated, killed, removed from any type of central position within the patriarchy, uh, it's easy to see how the value of life has been diminished over time under that structure. And so bringing back the voice of the woman um, into these social dialogues that are contemplating our ability to continue to live is immeasurable. In the book, I talk about some of the definitions for various roles that men and women take. And I think it's important to recognize that uh, these are not gender-specific roles. These are characteristics of an energy that's being carried by individuals. And so there may be somebody who is identified as a man who carries a lot of characteristics of the divine feminine within them. There could be somebody who identifies as a woman who also carries the energies of the sacred masculine within them. These energetic qualities in these stories are simply reflective of some of these historic roles that men and women have taken in the book, when I talk about the word for wife in the book is the one who keeps me connected to my heart and spirit. When we think about the role of the sacred feminine in the unfolding story that we're all living, the one who keeps us connected to our heart and spirit has been absent. And so we see that the action being taken out in the world is largely heartless. We see that people have lost their connection to deep spiritual truth. Also, when a woman is carrying life in her body, the space where she carries that life is directly beneath her heart so that the life that's being created is being cultivated in the space of heart-based wisdom. And life is deeply connected to heart-based knowing. In its creation, in the process of it being birthed into the world, um, there's a, a great deal of, of heart-based wisdom that feeds and guides those processes. And so when we think about the life um, outside the womb, no longer being governed by the wisdom that sustains, creates, nurtures, and cultivates life. Uh, We can see how we ended up in a society that devalues life, where people hear about massive loss of life, whether it be plant life, or animal life, or human life. And they just say, geez, that's too bad. And they go back to eating their dinner. We've been ingrained um, by these ideologies that lead us to believe that the sacredness and the value of life is no longer important, that it's not worthy of our consideration. And it is that very ideology that has led us to this place of massive destruction of life where 1 million species on the planet are currently facing extinction and one of those species is us as human beings. Our relatives in the natural world have faced the brunt of what is now cycling back and coming toward us as human beings like a tidal wave. And so we have to really reinvigorate that compassionate awareness that is carried by the sacred feminine into all of our social dialogues so that we can begin to move forward in a way that recognizes that all living beings, whether they be from the human species or from an animal species or a plant species, have the right to live out the course of their life with dignity and that we have a sense of responsibility toward that life. That basic premise comes from the sacred feminine. And so to to try to move forward without that voice, um, in my opinion, would be catastrophic. Another book that I'm working on right now as I'm finishing up the sequel to The Sacred Instructions is a book called Women Rise Wild, which talks about women reconnecting to the wild aspects of raw life, Um, connecting to this umbilical connection to Mother Earth and bringing forward all of this rich, fertile life giving, life-sustaining, life-cultivating, nourishing energy into all aspects of our being. Because women strip away that foundational aspect of their being when they step into specific roles within the patriarchy to show that they're strong enough to stand with the men. And that's a colossal mistake. We don't need women who can prove that they're the same as the men. We need women who are willing to stand up for the protection of all life on this planet. We need women who are willing to stand up for the continuation of the species for our future generations. We need women who are willing to say, no, uh, your behavior is out of control and we're going to stop you from moving forward. We need women of profound courage to rise up right now. We need them to rise up wild. When we start talking about these aspects of our movement within climate change or when we're thinking about social justice, that that voice of the woman has been missing. And right now it's it's desperately needed.
0: Thank you for sharing that. And we wanna be respectful of your time. I know it's the end of the hour. Um, if you do have time and if you're willing, there's one story that we would love for you to share, if you wouldn't mind just telling it, the story of the cannibal giant.
2: We have a figure in our mythology who is called Giwok. And Giwok is the cannibal giant. Giwok's role is one of protector of Mother Earth. And so Giwok sleeps deep in the forest and remains there, immobile, until he hears a very specific call from Mother Earth. And this call from Mother Earth informs him that human beings are consuming faster than she can produce and are harming her faster than she can heal and that they have become a threat to life and so when giwalk hears that specific call he wakes up and he begins to move into society and lull the people into this false sense of security and starts dancing them faster and faster and faster and getting them to consume more and more and more until they consume themselves off the planet and their behavior leads to their own extinction so that Mother Earth can replenish herself and begin to renew. Our elders tell us that Giwok is awake at this time and that we are living in the time of the cannibal giant. When I think about our society and I think about the fact that colonization has no natural endpoint, that it reaches a certain point that appears to be the end, but then it turns around, cycles back and begins cannibalizing itself it's easy to see that we are living in those times because those who thought they were part of the safe colonial settler set are now realizing that their lives are also being endangered by this cannibalization of life that has been set loose upon the planet through colonization. And so the story of Giwok, uh, the cannibal giant, is incredibly relevant at this time where we have to decide how we're going to move forward. Because there's only one way for us to put Gewok back to sleep, and that's for us to wake up. So if we don't wake up to the truth of the reality that we're living in, and the truth of the harms that have been caused by our ways of being in the world in relation to conquest, domination, colonization, mass unchecked consumption, and capitalism, then we are going to dance ourselves right off the planet. I encourage everyone to take this opportunity to wake up from the dance of giwok and to begin walking back into alignment with the dance of life.
0: I think that is a perfect way to end this beautiful and illuminating conversation. And I just want to thank you so much. Personally, I have grown in the past hour. Um, I'm sure our listeners are going to as well. And I can't wait for them to hear it.
2: Wonderful. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to have this conversation with you. I appreciate it.
1: Yes, thank you. It's been an absolute honor.
0: Thanks to the great band River Wireless for our theme music and to our sponsor, the Sierra Club.
1: This episode was produced by Allison Wilson. We are proud to be distributed by the Critical Frequency Podcast Network.
0: Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and please also leave a review there for us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps get the word out and helps other people find our show.
1: And join the conversation between episodes by following us on Twitter. At
0: NPLH Podcast. And remember, there is no place like home.
1: And the world is full of zanies and fools.